I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Curzon Film Podcast. This week we are discussing the Safdie Brothers crime thriller Good Time, as well as having an interview from one of the directors themselves, Josh Safdie. I'm Sam Howlett and this week I'm joined by Ryan Hewitt. Hello. Hello. What have you been up to? Well, this week I've watched a new documentary called The Work, which is by two guys called Jarius McCleary and Gethin Aldous. Uh, it is getting a lot of buzz on the festival circuit, mm-hmm. and quite rightly, it is yeah. absolutely fantastic, this documentary. It's about a rehabilitation program that's been set up in Folsom Prison for maximum security offenders, and they get taken through a psychological process to try and work out the root cause of their crimes, why they did what they did, and it hence throws up some extraordinary moments of guys just realizing that all their problems started when they were children typically uh it was a lot to do with their fathers and their relationship with their fathers it's really brutal stuff it's uh, violently emotional but all of the guys all of the characters are so eloquent Mm. they're so they're in such a safe area that they are completely honest they don't hesitate in what they're saying they're it's sort of so open and it just yeah. flows from them and it is startling how raw and how candid they are with each other okay and these are tough people yeah. these are people brought up with a strict code like criminal code of honor yeah. and there are murderers and assaulters and bank yeah. robbers and they openly you know cry and get yeah. emotional and talk about the relationships with their parents right. and help each other and it is, it's, it's a, a level of intense emotional connection that most of us probably don't experience yeah. in our life. And we're seeing it being experienced by a group of people who are the last people you think yeah. would be able to talk to each other this way. And you kind of, do you kind of like, like them in a weird way? You, you endear to yeah. a lot of the characters right. because they're so self-aware and deprecating and you don't really engage with what they did. Right, okay. It's the, it does get acknowledged for almost everybody. A lot of people are gang members, and you can make assumptions about yeah. what they are in there for. Um, but it doesn't judge any of them. And the whole point of the process is about not judging each other. Yeah. And there's a, a card at the end that explains that this process, it's called the work, and it is 
because it is hard work. Yeah. It's brutalizing what they put themselves through. And it, it supposedly led to early release for f- right. a number of people who've gone through it. It's effective. Okay. It's probably fairly controversial because yeah. it is it's, it's yeah. tough. It's tough and, it, and maybe it also has some damage in other ways. Right. But it's uh, a fantastic documentary. I could not recommend it more. Uh, a little bit of a plug for BBC iPlayer. It's currently on there to watch yeah. for free and it's part of the Storyville strand. And uh, I think you're going to hear a lot more about it in the coming Festa uh, award season. Yeah. So it's a film, like a feature film. It's a feature length yeah. documentary, okay. yeah. But it has been picked up by Storyville as they right. tend to pick out some brilliant documentaries yeah. in that strand, yeah. Okay, excellent. Um, on a slightly similar level, I've been watching Mindhunter on Netflix. Uh, yeah. So yeah, this is, yeah. you know sort of blends fiction and non-fiction about how the FBI in the 70s started to use psychological um, behavioural studies to catch serial killers. Yeah. And like this, the highlight for me is what they do with Ed Kempler. So Ed Kempler is a real-life serial killer, the co-ed killer. I won't tell you what he did, but uh, if you want to know, you can look it up. Okay. It's pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But he's one of their subjects that they interview, these two FBI guys. And the FBI guys are, they're fictional characters, but he's real. And they interview him and they, they like him. They really like him. They get along with him. He's funny. He's nice. He's, he like offers them sandwiches in prison. He yeah. like gets stuff for them. But he like very casually talks about what he did to his victims. In a kind of frank, in a kind of frank matter way. Matter of and fact it way. makes so much sense to him. Um, but this is um, the new Netflix show by David Fincher. Um, so there's a high level of sort of prestige already mm-hmm. built into it. And it took me a few episodes to fully get on board with it, but I am very much involved in it now. And it's kind of, it's got a kind of Sons of the Lambs vibe to it about oh, sort right. of FBI and psychology. Mm. And um, I went to see Sons of the Lambs actually when it was re-released a few weeks ago. The part of the BFI three yeah, season. Yeah. Um, so yeah, watching that and then watching Mindhunter as well was really kind of a nice blend. Of things going on. So is Fincher directing? He directed the first, definitely the first one. I think he directed the first two as well. But okay. interestingly, the um, an episode I watched the other day finished. I saw it directed by Asif Kapadia. Oh the wow! The documentary maker yeah. of uh, Amy and Senna. So that was really interesting that they they brought in this documentary maker. Um, yeah, uh, really interesting choice. But a well, great I imagine episode. yeah, with it being true life and based yeah. on presumably transcripts that he's got a sort of an affinity for representing so, yeah. that kind of and thing and that kind of research that he did for those other films mm. that he can bring that to this so yeah Mindhunter really really worth a watch check it out I mean I don't think it's a very good title to be honest Mindhunter it sounds a bit like a kind of Mindhorn spin-off yeah um, <laughs> yeah there's but, a sort uh, of inbuilt irony <laughs> yeah. isn't there yeah. um, but no it's really good really worth checking out Okay, so uh, before we discuss Good Time, uh, let's hear from the film's co-director. So this is Josh Safdie, who directs alongside his brother, Ben Safdie, who had made a film... This is their fourth feature, if we're counting their first feature, which not everybody does. Yeah. But before this, they made Heaven Knows What in 2014, which is uh, extremely tough, uh, brutalising, but completely electric and completely thrilling story about uh, a heroin addict who lives in the streets of New York. It's based on an unpublished memoir of that uh, person who also played the lead role. Yeah. And it's drawn comparisons to, quite rightly, to like Christiane F and yeah. Requiem for a Dream. Okay. And it's a completely uncompromising look at a street-level heroin yeah. addict's life. 
and the constant search for the next fix and right. the relationships that form on the streets, like yeah. romantic relationships, uh, business relationships and things like that. Um, there's a lot in common with the way that Good Time is, is yeah. shot, which okay. we'll, we'll get onto. But before that, they had a couple of other films, um, The Pleasures of Being Robbed and Daddy Long Legs, which are nigh on impossible to see. Oh, really? Well, well I, I can't, I can't <laughs> find Daddy Long Legs anywhere. Right. Although it played in the festival circuits and surely it's somewhere, somewhere it's, in the world, it exists. Yeah. But Pleasures of Being Robbed was uh, a project that they were commissioned to make a, a short film, I believe, for a luxury handbag brand. Right. And it's it spun into a feature film and they oh, ended okay. up having something on their hands and decided to release it That's cool. on a okay. festival circuit. So, um, yeah, co-directors, Ben Safdie is in the film as Nick, but then his co-director brother, Josh Safdie, sat down with Jake a few weeks ago. So enjoy. So we are delighted to welcome Josh Safdie onto the Curzon Film Podcast uh, to talk about Good Time. Uh, so Josh, this film, primarily about two brothers, their antics in New York, minus all the robberies, uh, was there a personal genesis for this story for you? But because of the the fraternal relationship? Yeah. The bro- uh, you know, it's funny. When we premiered the film at Cannes, you know, immediately, that's like your first taste of how the uh, public narrative will unfold. And a lot of the conversations were, you know, you two are brothers. This film is about brothers. Is there a personal, you know, origin to this story? The short answer is I, we didn't even think about it as a film about brothers until we were in Cannes being asked that question. Uh, because we just, it's just the way things are, you know, Benny is an extension of me and I'm an extension of him in many regards. And in that, in that space, yes, I think good time is very much about, you know, knowing, you know, I mean, I, it's very different because Connie's was estranged from his brother because of potentially things that he did when he was a kid, uh, which is obviously not in the film and it's a backstory, but I do think that, Connie sees Nick as an extension of himself and in that regards there's a bit of shame and also a rejection of that shame like there's nothing wrong with you you are a unique interesting strong person you know you just need to be taught that through independence and you can only get independence through experience and you know I think that Benny and I do push each other in that regards and you know our dad growing up used to always tell us we were partners in crime and all we have is each other and these weird fatalistic emotional romantic ideas about brotherhood were definitely grafted onto us as a very early age and that i that as you say fatalistic emotion i think that's very much part of connie's character <laughs> in that like he has so much passion and emotion but that's, he's an intense guy yeah. connie's an intense guy who who is the star of his own world and and uh he's he's independent you know he's an independent person in in a world that basically has already counted him out and has he's you know i don't know doing things his own way in a, in an effort to kind of have this thing called freedom which is not really a real it's almost like a uh, at this point freedom is like a and especially in america is like this strange concept of these thing that you're promised and this thing that you are kind of inherit you're born with because you're American, but the reality is, is there's very little freedom. Mm. He um, he says at one point that in his former life he would have been a dog. <laughs> yeah, I think that's very true. I think so too. Yeah, um, I feel that way very much. Mm. And how, so building that such an intense character, um, how did you do that with Robert? When did he come in to kind of develop that with you? Uh, I. Th- Early on, I mean, uh, when I first met with him, I, I noticed a, um, 
a mania inside of him, a determination that he wants to do something and he's not going to stop until he gets it. And also this con- this kind of trauma inside of him, you know, obviously it's obnoxious to people with, with, you know, more intense traumas, but trauma is trauma. And, you know, I think being part of, you know, the phenom- worldwide phenomena that he was a part of in Twilight, I think that was very traumatic for him, the public part of it. I don't think the actual filmmaking part was traumatic, but you know, the way the world was obsessed with him and he just constantly constantly wanted to be on the run and, and hiding in hiding. So we wanted to bring those elements of his personality to the character, you know, as a man on the run. And we wanted to kind of create this illusion that he was street cast. You know, he was a real guy who we found and decided to put in a movie. And, and to do that, in order to do that, we had to basically sculpt the a life the real life of a fictitious character and that was based on real people my personal lo- stories and imagination and and news stories etc cetera, etc cetera. and yeah i think that the the first thing that we kind of started to really realize was that he's kind of like a superhero in his own mind he has there's an arrogance to his um confidence and he could you know, I, I shared with him early on this documentary by John Alpert called One Year in a Life of Crime and, you know, which followed around these kind of low end criminals in Newark, New Jersey in the late 80s. And there was the thing that jumped out to Rob was that these guys were like superstars of their own films. You know, that they were very romantic. They're like, you know, have a small court date and they decide to jump it. And they say, you know what, they're going to have to find me. And this is, again, this like kind of romantic idea uh, that's kind of born out of the movies. It's not really born out of real life. And, and I think that Connie is very much like a 2017, you, you know, is he kind of he's almost living in the crime films that he's seen kind of yeah i mean that's a lot of people i mean to rob a bank in 2017 is not a fruitful endeavor like you don't get a lot of money robbing a bank you uh you know at most you're walking away with three thousand dollars at most which is a lot but it's not like what the movies make it out to be in order to get out what, what movies make it out to be you have to you know, you have to really rob a bank. Like you have, but most rob bank robberies, which happen daily, multiple times a day, th- you know, throughout every city, they're they're quiet, they're mundane, they're note passing, they're like the way they are in our movie, and they usually only yield a couple thousand dollars. And then you get people do get greedy, like Connie, and they try to get more, and that's when that's when problems start to arise. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that that these big institutions are okay with losing a little bit of money. But once you try to take a lot of money, then they then it's, they start to make things difficult and potentially dangerous for everyone. Mm. And so as you said... But quite- he does, he does. Like, yeah. I mean, I do think that anyone who robs a bank in 2017 is responding to decades and decades of, of, of pop culture creating the romantic ideal to rob a bank. I mean... Robbing a bank is, you know, it's the most romantic way to commit a crime. You're sticking it to the man. You're getting, you're literally robbing money from a business that deals with money. Uh, and, and it's, and it's loud. And it's, again, it's, yeah, it's built into the movie world. Mm. You know, it's Bonnie and Clyde. It's, it's Dog Day Afternoon. You know what I mean? There are these, there, there's a precedent, a pop culture precedent to robbing a bank. Mm. And so you mentioned a couple of films there um, that may not like directly influence this, but I, I believe one of them, 
before Good Time was Walkabout, Nicholas Rogue's film. Right? Yeah, but only very briefly. There's okay. a the, the Walkabout reference in the movie is. I mean, we only really reference two movies uh, in the film, and it's After Hours and Walkabout. But Walkabout, it's not such a random. It's such a uh, misleading thing to kind of mention because it was Ronnie, my co-writer, and who's the co-editor of the film, Ronnie Bronstein. He mentioned Walkabout in regards to a police montage in uh, in Good Time. He said, I think that we should do a police montage in the vein of a Nick Rogue montage. And he mentioned the scientist montage from Walkabout and, and uh, just that it's very quick and almost feels arbitrary. Uh, but that's it, really. I mean, it's not really... That's why I'm saying it's like to think that the movie was in- influenced by it. It's very formal influence, kind of. Yeah. And then After Hours, we literally referenced the soundtrack at one point. Hmm. Well, um, so I went on... I think in America, you guys went into the Criterion Closet and <laughs> yeah. picked out a few things. Um, uh, I met, your brother mentioned uh, that he watched, he watched Mean Time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how much that influenced this film, but... What very struck- much some huge influence, Mean yeah. Time, yeah. Yeah. Because the thing that struck me about what he said was that he watched Mean Time on YouTube. Because um, this film's going to come out in the UK on day and date. So yeah, it's I heard that. Yeah. yeah, I just heard that yesterday. So I was wondering if you were conscious or like cared about how people are going to be watching Good Time. Look, I'm a romantic, I believe. I'm a romantic who, like, by design, have made my has made my life unbelievably... Uh, tumultuous and busy. I'm like, I can't, I believe that if you stop moving, uh, you get depressed and uh, because it gives you time to think. So I just have inundate myself with so much stuff to do that when I go to the only, I find the only way I can watch movies is in a movie theater. So I strongly, strongly hold on to and, and cherish the movie going experience because it is an excuse to kind of be un to be unbothered. Uh, you're in a movie. Don't bother me. You turn your phone off. It's one of the few times in life where we turn our phones off, and most people don't even do that. So I mean, but I I don't turn my phone off all the time, but I don't check it. That's for sure. Uh, so I believe in that process. I believe in going to watch a movie. But yeah, Benny was referencing the fact because that was the only way you could see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually very hard to even program those early Mike Lee films because they are so inundated with TV deals. Like we've been trying, same thing with Alan Clark. We've been trying to program Made in Britain, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time. But it, you just can't screen it in a movie theater because there's a TV deal. The same thing with Executioner Song by the Norma Mailer um, uh, Larry uh, um, Schiller film. It's it's a TV movie, so it can't play in a theater. But I, you know, I don't care the way people watch. I think what's crazy, what filmmakers forget, is that in the lifespan of a movie, the theatrical experience is only ten percent of of viewers. Like the movie goes on and lives on video, and that's how most people discover it. You know, if you're lucky, that's why theatrical experience is so special is because you're lucky to see it. And that's what I think everyone needs to be reminded. Like I know right now in the States, Good Time is on 35 millimeter and it's playing in at the theater in New York and it'll go to a theater in L.A. And, you know, I know that that's I always feel very fortunate to see a movie on the big screen and, and I see a lot. But, you know, it is important to remember, like, some of my most memorable film-watching film, going, film watching experiences have been on a cell phone. Mm. You know, when I was making Heaven Knows What, I watched an entire movie on a cell phone with the lead actress on the street. 
you know, and that was very memorable because it was didn't matter where we were, the whole world disappeared, and we were engaged in this little movie experience. Mm. That said, I still strongly believe in the theatrical <laughs> experience, and you know, I'd much rather see a movie in a theater than on a cell phone. But you know, to each his own. Mm. Mm. So I'm curious to ask you about the the filmmaking process because in your in your previous work, there's been a, a lot of blurring between when you are rolling and when you might not be. Uh, even going down to the crew, maybe not being sure about what's being used, what's not. Um, for something like this, that um, you're working with bigger set pieces, did you still try and maintain that fly on the wall feeling? Yeah, sure. I mean, we, you know, making a movie is really just, it's like, um, I, I, I said this like in on the on Charlie Rose show, I just kind of just said it. And I didn't realize that I never even thought of it before. It's really... You know, it's like, I don't know if you have the same thing here in London, but the express train and the local train, do they ride on parallel tracks? Um, well, there'll be quite a few different trains, but well, yeah, do you, yeah, like you where you where you can be on one train and then you uh, the other train kind of pulls up and for a brief moment you can see into the other yeah, train yeah. and then it takes off, the express keeps going. Filmmaking is the local train catching up with the express train and then looking into it and just seeing a moment and then it takes off. And that's, you know, sometimes you want to maintain that as much as possible. And as this, the budgets get bigger and the crew sizes get larger, you know, it becomes harder and harder to kind of maintain that spontaneity. But we just did a big, big video shoot. And, and uh, you know, even our DP, who's done $100 million films, you know, was still kind of like, wow, this is, you can make a movie like this. So, yeah, I think that, you know, you want to, I don't, I hate, I don't say action because I think that's, I feel awkward saying it in 2017. It sounds like you're referencing hundreds of millions of things. So we just kind of like set up the action and then I just wait and then we just start rolling when we're ready kind of. So you can't, some, some actors need prompts, but I just have a hard time saying the word action. I don't know why. It seems corny. Brilliant. Well, Josh Safety, thanks so much for joining <coughs> us. Thank Cheers. you very much. Thanks, man. Okay, Josh Safety there talking to Jake. So let's get into the film. I want to talk about the opening shot first, actually. So uh, you start with this wide shot that feels really familiar of New York. It's this mm -hmm. huge skyscraper, huge like, cluster of skyscrapers, and it's sort of slow zooming into the building. It's kind of like the first shot of The Dark Knight, where it's like, okay, zooming yeah. into that building. Um, but that's kind of all we see of the New York that we think we know, like these huge skyscrapers and this busy, bustling urban environment because yeah. then it goes directly down to street level doesn't it for the entirety rest of the film pretty much the rest of it apart from yeah. at the end when we yeah. go back to back a to high rise yeah. but it's a very unusual high rise yeah. it's a, not a typical New York Absolutely, high rise but... yeah. um, and this is a New York that I think yeah that has gone away I think for a while certainly on film yeah, yeah. and it's, it's nice to be back in this kind of gritty 70s style yeah. ground level New York yeah, absolutely. It's it's dirty. It's dangerous. Yeah. It's it's that version of New York that certainly our generation hear about. Yeah. But if we go to New York, we're yeah. not going to see it. Yeah, I went to New York and I, it couldn't have been safer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you couldn't feel safer. In, yeah, well, certainly in Manhattan right yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like the cleanest. Yeah. In that, in a sense, place that you could go, and everything yeah. feels so familiar because you've seen it on film, and you, you yeah. feel like you know where you are. Exactly, everywhere yeah. you go even if it's the first time you've been there yeah but of course this is set in queens isn't it yeah 
which is a borough I've never been Me to. Neither, I no. don't really know if this is a true representation of Queens. I imagine it's certainly a extra gritty version yeah. of Queens. It's like a heightened sense of yeah. grittiness. Yeah. Yeah. But that's that's where the thrill comes from this, right? That's yeah. where the stakes are. Yeah. This depiction of an a New York underworld, underbelly. Yeah. That is it's just separate from the a, gen, a normal tourist yeah. or an outsider's view of New York. So everything that happens there has a slight detachment. And I think that allows us to enjoy what Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's essentially quite a, a, a series of unpleasant events. Yeah. And not feel that it's, like a, you know, like a dangerous, necessarily a dangerous world. It's that like we're we're outsiders looking in on yeah. this this low life life. Yeah, and there's almost this kind of slight sort of fan, fantastical element to it as well. That it's this like other world, a world that we don't really know about. Yeah, that we're looking into. Yeah, and quite a lawless world. Yeah, within we can see the police and we can see hospitals and authority yeah. figures. And security guards, yeah. you know, these kind of authority figures pop up, the kind of thing, people that keep us in line. Yeah. But the characters in this film play by their own rules. They're, comp- yeah. they're outlaws. And it's not necessarily working out for them, no. living this lifestyle, <laughs> largely because yeah. of their, their circumstances. They're like low on the socioeconomic ladder and they're struggling to make ends meet anyway. Yeah. And they're just doing everything they can. And Connie, played by Robert Pattinson, yeah. is is such a perfect representation of that because he's got this amazing sort of like salesman patter yeah where in another life he has all of the personal skills he would need to be an enormous success yeah he's got the talk he's got the charm he's got the looks he's got the, the, drive. the swagger yeah. the drive if he wasn't from the background that he is from or didn't feel the kind of allegiance that he does to his brother yeah this guy could be, would be a high flyer. Yeah. But he is, for various reasons, living in this underbelly and doing everything he can to get the best out of it. Yeah, I think it's difficult to determine if he is in this world because he likes it. Like, yeah. There's certain characters in the film that you think they really love this criminal life. This is for them. Yeah. But Connie is kind of... You can never tell if it's, if it's for a reason, if there's a specific reason he needs to get this get out of this life. Or if he kind of does enjoy it. If he gets a thrill out of it, yeah, if he thinks this is for me, this is the life I want to live, or it's hard, it doesn't, the film doesn't really place him on either end of that. No, no, it doesn't. And I think on the flip side of his talents in persuasion, Mm. 
there is a, a dark side to that. There is this, yeah. is he a bit of a sociopath? Yeah. Side? Like oh, he, yeah. He's a user of people yeah. and a manipulator. And it does seem that the only person that he's really looking out for is his brother. And yeah. Which is a very like, heartwarming is, connection yeah. he has with his brother. But outside of that, he's ruthless. He is completely. And I think in that sense, he reminds me a bit of um, Sonny from Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. In that he is a criminal, very publicly doing a criminal act. He doesn't, he's not particularly sympathetic to other people apart from one person in his life, which is what he's doing everything for. Yeah. But, the only person he cares about. Yeah. But at what cost? At the cost of a lot of other people. Yeah. A lot of other lives. Yeah. Um, and that's that he's a real, you know, an amoral character, I think, Connie. You don't know whether you can fully trust him as a character as well. I, th- I think you're right. I think Dog Day Afternoon is a good yeah. comparison as well, not only for the the hinges on the the aftermath of a yeah. bank robbery. Right. But like you're saying, that vision of New York, yeah. that kind of character, that kind of relationship. Yeah. Um, you were saying earlier about the sort of the film's influences. I mean, so Dog Day Afternoon is one of them. Like, what else did you pick out from this? Um, well, should we, should we say what the film's about? Like the oh, yeah. Plot of the we film. haven't even said what the film's about yet. Because <laughs> then um, the influences yeah, kind sure. of feed yeah. into that. So, um, so we have two brothers, um, Connie Nickus, played by uh, Robert Pattinson, and then Nick Nickus, played by Ben Safdie, the co-director. And after a bank robbery goes wrong, Ben ends up on Rikers Island in custody with the police. And then Connie has a certain amount of time, he feels, to bail him out and get some money to get him out which is essentially it. And the film's him running around trying to find some money. Yeah. At whatever means necessary. Yeah, and it's, yeah. A, it's a complete, like, chaotic yeah, journey. Yeah, it's sort of manic and yeah. constantly running, constantly on the move, doing something, yeah. And things going wrong at every yeah. turn. <laughs> desperately trying to get his brother out of, yeah. out of, uh, out of jail, where he's, a, yeah. he's particularly vulnerable in jail. Um, so... I think one of the key influences is not necessarily a, f- a film. It's well, though there is a film adaptation, but it's a literary influence of Hubert Selby Jr. In that it is a very uh, sort of almost f- sort of fetishized version of the New York low life, and he, in particular his novel *The Last Exit to Brooklyn*, in which I mean, *Good Time* could almost be a chapter of Last Exit right. to Brooklyn. Connie is the kind of character who would have been portrayed in Last Exit to Brooklyn and he would have this kind of motivation and these same kind of conflicts. Mm-hmm. The book, the film goes to some fairly dangerous places. It, it, I think it crosses a line of taste, right. moral taste, on two occasions in a way that it, get, it gets away with it because of things we've been saying about yeah. how it's just slightly detached from reality anyway. It's depicting a world that isn't... Yeah. The common man's world so it, it gets around those kind of problems but it definitely flirts with moral quandary yeah, I think, like. yeah. and um and i think that last exit to brooklyn is a really strong influence and you know jennifer jason lee is yeah play, plays a role in good time and played tralala in right udi adele's adaptation of last exit to brooklyn i think it's possibly dare i say an influence that they're wearing on their sleeve yeah. like you said yeah uh, I also think that there's some influences from Casavetti. I think, I don't think that Casavetti, were he making films today, would structure a film around the kinds of things no. that these two make films. I don't think he'd make a film about heroin addicts, yeah. about bank robbers. But I do think that he would, he would nod to those 
facts of life. Right. I think he would make films in a New York street about these kinds of people, about the way they interact with each other, about yeah. the romantic and familial loyalty that comes out of them. Yeah. Okay. A film like, I mean, Casavetti is like most commercial film, arguably Gloria. Yeah. There's a few little elements of that. There's the New York, gritty New York vision. There's this this one character who's very savvy and knows how the world works looking after in Gloria a child but in yeah. good time he's looking after his brother yeah. who is he has some developmental issues so he is vulnerable and he needs looking after and you know there's a few little comparisons that I could yeah. draw a okay. little bit of a stretch perhaps but I think that there's something about that energy even the, I mean like, frankly the way the guys make the, the way the Sashi brothers make their films yeah. They, they don't have permits for everything no. they do. They, they do it's things that they shouldn't be doing. Level, yeah. yeah. It's this like yeah. guerrilla style of filmmaking that Casavetti pioneered. Okay. And I've certainly heard them mention him as a strong yeah. influence. Okay. Because I, um, another comparison I got was um, The Warriors. Yeah. From the 70s again. Yeah. This kind of a side of New York that nowadays is completely alien to us. But at the time <clears throat> was a very real dangerous place, I suppose. And in The Warriors, they have... It's also over one night. They have to get from one place to the other and survive. And that's kind of what's happening here in a way. This kind of constant ticking of the clock, the constant moving on, the constant theory. You don't know who's around what corner. Yeah. What's going to happen? Who can we trust? Yeah, and that sort of episodic yeah. approach to the story as well. Yeah. Little incidents happening. And The Warriors as well has this kind this sort of... It's, it feels just one remove from reality. Like It's not like... Yeah. There's not fantasy elements in it, but it doesn't feel like our world all the time and I kind of got that with good time here yeah. and there that this doesn't feel completely hardcore realism you know there's a slight remove I think yeah I agree yeah it's it's hyper real isn't yeah, it yeah exactly yeah um okay so let's talk about Robert Pattinson in the film then um mm. and the interesting thing about him and his career is that his diehard biggest fans that love him in Harry Potter and Twilight may not know about this film <laughs> uh, so his career path is definitely one that you sort of can't look away from yeah and the choices he's making at the moment with like Cosmopolis and this it's just yeah one he, weird thing after another he's doing a full rebrand yeah I think I mean supposedly he approached the Safi brothers and said he wanted to disappear into the role right okay he wants to be unrecognisable he wanted people to watch this and say isn't Robert Pattinson yeah. supposed to be in this okay not realise that that's who they're looking at. Yeah. And certainly the way they dress him in these like... Baggy... Uh, what is it? Avi, Avirex yeah. kind of jacket. This baggy leather jacket or yeah. pleather, whatever it is. And beanies and this trashy job of bleach blending oh, his yeah. hair. Yeah. He is... He's he's unrecognisable in several senses. Yeah. And, you know, physically he, he takes on a completely different form. Yeah. And the way he carries himself, the way he speaks, it's very, it feels very authentic. And he really feels like he embodies yeah. it. But the kind of character he's playing is unrecognisable yeah. to Robert Pattinson's previous work. Yeah. And they also, I think it'd be very easy for a film like this to have its protagonist be a Robin Hood character. Yeah. That he's kind of, oh, he, yeah, he's a criminal, but he's doing it for a good cause. And especially he's doing everything to help his, you know, um, yeah. his vulnerable brother. Mm. But they throw some things in here and there that really are make him quite unlikable and could make him quite unlikable. Yeah. Some really, like you were saying about the kind of moral quandaries that it puts him in and he kind of dives for everything. Like 
he's not hesitant when he does certain things yeah. that you think, oh, that's, is that pushing his character too far? But I think they want that to do that. They want you to not be fully on board with Connie. Yeah, you need to question everything yeah. he does. Partly because then you understand how much he cares about his brother. Yeah. But partly it's a character piece of character development, right? Yeah. It's, it's showing you that this guy has lived in a world that requires him to be amoral and requires yeah. him to be ruthless. And it just fleshes out his past. Yeah. But there's also the question of how good is he for his brother? Because the opening yeah. scene has his brother in some kind of um, sort of facility. Yeah, he's he's. I don't know. Exactly they don't really explain it, but yeah, yeah, he's, he's going through some sort of assessments yeah. to see how he's he's progressing. Yeah, and then um, Connie bursts in and says, "No, I'm taking my brother with me." And then the guy says, "Oh, this is not good for your brother." And then him, he, his brother helps him rob a bank. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Next scene. So you do question, well, how much is this for his brother, or how much is it just because he, um, Connie needs Ben, maybe even more than, um, uh, not Ben, Nick needs Connie. Yeah, he's got, there's a, a codependency between yeah. them, isn't there? Yeah. Because they've seemingly abandoned their like, parental figures. Their grandmother. Their grandmother. Yeah. And so there's very much this idea of we're, it's, us, it's us against the yeah. world. We've only got each other to yeah. rely on. And how, how much of that has been a choice and how much of it has been forced upon yeah. them is unclear. And with Connie, like you say, there's, there's an element of doubt about him, about yeah. whether he is... What's, what are his reasons? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which makes him complex yeah. and interesting. Absolutely. And fun to watch. He is, yeah, you can't, you can't look away, can you? You can't no, see the eyes of him. Yeah. He's, he's also kind of twitchy as well at times, isn't he? And just kind of weird. And He's got this nervous energy. Yeah, yeah. Completely. And, you know, yeah, it, it dives into the world of, like, street drugs. Yeah. And a big plot motivation is he's trying to find a bottle of Sprite <laughs> yeah. that has been replaced. The Sprite's gone and it's, it's full of LSD, yeah. it's full of acid. And it's been hidden somewhere and he knows that it's worth a substantial yeah. amount of money and could be the key to bailing his brother out. So yeah. he's trying to track down this bottle of Sprite and it's completely un non-judgmental about this yeah. kind of recreational activity or what lifestyle choices. And yeah. he's definitely got that kind of drug addled yeah. energy about I need, him. I need this fix. Yeah. yeah. Um, the scene where they introduced the bottle, I think at first I was really like, what is going on? Because yeah. it's just, it's, it's a guy telling a story. And yeah, I was thinking, it goes into a flashback, wow, they've, they've, yeah. they've put a lot of time and effort into this flashback that we've now, I have no idea what this means to the plot at all. Is this just like a sort of flight of fancy, fancy moment? Yeah. It's almost, almost, dare I say, a kind of Guy Ritchie-esque that moment. Where yeah, they, it is, you know, sort yeah. of the lock stock way of like, right, here's what happened. And then <laughs> he did this and he did that. He did this and he did that. Like, you know, it's that. Yeah, it's exactly right. And it, yeah, because it's not entirely like, linear or yeah. coherent. It's just like little bits and pieces yeah, of what happened. Of what this guy can remember. I got out yeah. of prison and then I was in the back of this cab <laughs> and I got thrown out. And uh, that's the Buddy Duress plays that character. Right. Yeah. And he is, he's obviously going to become like a, the safety staple. Right. He, Has he been in one of the main yeah. characters in Heaven Knows okay. What? playing a similar kind of guy. It could right. be the same guy, I suppose. Okay. Uh, again, like, like a low-level hustler and yeah. drug dealer and heaven knows what. And here he's just getting out of prison for something or other. Yeah. Fairly comfortable in that that okay. world. And uh, Buddy, Buddy Duress is a real great, like one of those faces that is a, yeah. is a strange but 
cap- captivating yeah. face right, okay. and his delivery of his dialogue has got so much character yeah. in it, especially when he tells that story, which is essentially like just a big piece of exposition in the back of a car. It is, yeah. But it's done in quite a dynamic yeah, way. and it gets it, away with it. Yeah. yeah. And then um, Barkal Abdi comes into it in a kind of small role, but he has quite a, uh, a moment that you just think, oh no, <laughs> yeah. don't do it, oh no. <laughs> yeah. Did you, because I felt in terms of the tone, I felt like every moment was kind of one step away from being full on comedy at times. Oh, it's very funny. Yeah. The, uh, without not wanting to do it, give away any spoilers, but yeah. the, the, the way that Buddy Jurassic's character yeah. enters the story <laughs> yeah. by like, happenstance is yeah. hilarious. Yeah. And it plays with this idea of you can almost see it coming, but yeah. you can't work out how this is going to help the story. Yeah. So surely this isn't what's going to happen. I mean, I thought I saw that coming, but then I thought, yeah. no, this film wouldn't do that. Yeah. That's because ca- it, it's kind of like this, this would happen in The Hangover. Yeah. You know? There's loads of things I think this, this could just be The Hangover if it was done in a different way. Yeah. You know, this plot point. But it manages, it's such a good balance actually of that tone yeah. to keep it not, to not go too broad with it. Definitely, because it doesn't, yeah. yeah, when it does do deliver a punchline, which yeah. it delivers several punchlines, yeah. it's not like pause for a laugh. It yeah. doesn't have that, that tone to it. Right. So the film has also got this really, yeah, we've been talking about a lot of 70s movies here. Um, yeah. And the soundtrack, I think, plays into that. And this is by uh, One O Tricks Point Never. And it's this very kind of John Carpenter y synth electronic. Yeah. And it feels, I don't know if this is, this is actually the case, but it feels like it never stops. It feels like the music plays from opening to end. Like there's always something, some music. I think you're right. I think it's, I don't know if it does it come yeah. and go, but it does create such an atmosphere that, yeah. that is so in tune with the film's yeah. tone that it feels like you're in it the whole time. Yeah. And even if you can't, even if the, the soundtrack isn't playing there, there's this like low level hum yeah. and it's got this sort of abrasive, bass that runs through that just stays with you i think it's the kind of soundtrack that you want to like own on vinyl you know and put it up on the wall and show it off yeah i think so and of course it won best score at the Cannes film festival this year best original score okay excellent thoroughly deserved and it and it's it's in keeping with again something the safety brothers did in heaven knows what i don't i don't think it was the same composer but again like very abrasive electronic sounds designed to disorientate And seems to be their style yeah. coming through. You know, these they their influences are abundant, yeah, without question. But they have got an energy that I think is quite unique. Yeah. And while I think that there's comparisons with things like Tangerine, in that it yeah. had this pace and it was low level and it was people running around streets yeah. and chasing after something, and that had a great energy. But the Safety Brothers stuff has a bit more grit, and it has. Yeah something of its own i think that they are they're not they're not just copying people they're doing something no, they are, really unique yeah. and i can't wait to see what they do next we actually asked the safety brothers to pick some films for us yeah to to program a night of all nighters right because good time takes place over a 24-hour period yeah. and so they've got a lot of influences on there are lots of films that take place over yeah. 24 hours and so we asked the safety brothers if they could choose six films that you could watch all night an all nighter of all nighters so you'd start at 8pm yeah. and then you'd finish at 8am and they picked 
they started with Collateral, Michael Mann's film, right, okay. Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. That, I can see that fitting in with this, actually. Yeah, and that, like, neon-soaked yeah. night and that amoral characters yeah, with a persuasion and yeah. charm. That, yeah. That, yeah. And, an, and an A-list actor doing something different yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. And then at 10pm, you were to tune in to... After Hours, Martin Scorsese's yeah. film with Griffin okay. Dunn, which is all over good time, yeah. I think. Um, certainly in the campaign, they've referenced it. Right, with the, okay. The, the kind of style of the poster work in the, yeah. in the States. At midnight, they went on to George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Right. Then 2 a.m., you'd go for Larry Pierce's The Incident. Okay. Which is a film I'd never heard of. No, it has Martin Sheen's first on-screen wow. appearance. Okay. It's about a commuter train in New York that gets taken over by some punks. Right. This is made in the 60s. Yeah. Where the biggest social threat to it's everyone punks. was punks <laughs> and hippies. Yeah. And they, they terrorised this, this car- carriage of train uh, passengers. Then at 4am you'd watch Mike Lee's Naked, which I think has great yeah. comparisons to Good Time, particularly in David Thewlis's character. Yeah. And his like, nihilistic worldview yeah. and his wordsman, wordsmanship. Wordsman. Yeah. And fin- finally, you'd finish with this film called Miracle Mile, which I had never heard of. Just okay. um, an absolutely yeah. bonkers film about everything going wrong for a right. guy in in a day. And so, you know, these, they're, they're very open about the things yeah. that have influenced them. But they're not, it's not like a Edgar Wright film where they are. Yeah. They're not referencing anything, I yeah. guess, maybe. They're just, they just watch, they've watched a lot of films and... Like anyone, they've just been influenced by these, and yeah. it's kind of obvious that they have been influenced. But they're not spoofing anything, are they? They're not. This, they're not. Oh, this is an homage to this, or we did this because we love this. It's just, oh, we watch a lot of stuff, and this is what happens when you watch things. Like, yeah, I think that's right. You, yeah, yeah. I um, think that they've their references are more tonal, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's more like like we've been saying about the, the particular depiction of New York. Yeah, being straight from the seventies. Yeah. And that's that kind of thing they're referencing, yeah. rather than a specific like gags and, yeah. and little bits in other films. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any any final thoughts then on the film? Um, well, my final thought is a fairly bold one. I genuinely think that so far this year, this is probably yeah. my film of the year. Okay. I think it is utterly exhilarating. Yeah. It's daring. Yeah. It's a little bit. Like it, it makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable yeah. in places, but it owns them and it wins every one of those moments. I think Robert Pattinson is fantastic in it. I think yeah. the supporting cast are brilliant. Yeah. And I think that the Safdies are one of the most exciting pairs yeah. at the moment. It's definitely up there for me. And it because it is so kind of unapologetically fun. Yeah. Yet also immoral. Yeah. And yeah. Something that you just a really good like sort of Friday night film, you know, like you watch it, you watch it really late, I think, like yeah, one a.m. or something. It's like a midnight movie. Yeah, absolutely. And it does have, even though it's not even come out yet, but it already feels like it has this cult feeling to it. That it's going to have this like admiration, a a long life. I think. I think so too. Yeah. The way um, you know, we've got a piece of marketing with us over here, (laughs) which is this kind of. Uh, just like sheets of like fake um, like LSD tabs with Arpats's face in the middle, <laughs> yeah. uh, just so surreal. But stuff like that, I think this is just destined to be you know a long-standing cult favorite. Yeah, that will have midnight screenings. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it will. I think you're right. Um, but this Friday, 
at Curzon Soho at 7.45. There is a good time event, is there not? There is, yes. On Friday the 17th of November, mm-hmm. as Sam says, at 7.45 at Curzon Soho, we're throwing a bit of a party to celebrate mm-hmm. good time. We're going to be some DJs from Warp Records and Fonica Records are going to come along and play. Um, worth mentioning that the soundtrack we talked about by One Tricks Point Never is available through Warp Records, hence yep. why they are providing a DJ. And there are going to be some themed cocktails. There's going to be some prize giveaways. And of course, you can see the film. Sprite bottles filled with acid. Sprite yep. bottles, yes. <laughs> but uh, filled with Sprite. Excellent. Uh, so yeah, Good Time is out uh, today on Friday the 17th. And it is also on Cousin Home Cinema as Indeed well. it is. So you can watch it at home or in the, in the cinema. It's completely up to you. Okay, so that's the end of the show. We've got time for there. Thank you very much for listening. But that's not the end of your podcast experience this week, as we'll also be doing a separate episode where me and Jake will be discussing Paul McGuigan's Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool and Matt Spicer's Ingrid Goes West, as well as having interviews from both of those directors. So do make sure you check that out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you then. Thank you.